Several weeks ago, we began preaching through uh, what are known as the minor prophets in the Old Testament, uh, the 12 of the smallest prophets uh, at the back half of the Old Testament. And this morning, uh, we find ourselves, after singing a song about running to the Father, uh, we are going to look at the life of one who ran from the Father. 21 years ago today, right about this time, I was a sophomore in the basement of Clarksville High School just on the other side of town. I was in Barbara Westner's theater class at the time, and Ms. Westner and her husband David had owned and operated a theater on Off-Off-Broadway in New York for several years in the 90s. It was in the middle of that class that she got a phone call, I believe from her husband or from a friend, and it was the first that I had heard that there had been a terrorist attack in New York City. I remember much about that point in time. We couldn't get a TV, we didn't have a TV in the basement, and so we uh, knocked on the door next door to the art room, and Miss Elliot had an antenna-based little portable TV, so she ran an extension cord, ran it out of the basement into the alley so that we could try to get a signal so that we could find out what was going on. Later, the school called a lockdown on all televisions and anything else, and we were dismissed early, and I remember coming home and feeling vulnerable. I don't really have any other words for what I felt that morning. There are many in this room and there are many in this world. We're 21 years removed from that date. There are some halfway through college who have no memory of that morning. But for me, for the first time in my life, I felt unsure of the security that I had taken for granted for so long living in America. Our memories of tragic events like September the 11th might do several different things as we think on them. One, they might draw us down. They might bring pain. They might bring sorrow. They might bring despair. They might swell up fear. On the other hand, those memories can just as easily stir up within us an anger and a righteous indignation. And even I've seen a nationalistic pride that pits Christian America against the pagan nations of the world. I remember not long after that day hearing someone say, why don't we just nuke the desert and turn the whole thing to glass and be done with it? End it right here and now. There's a good reason why judges, prosecutors, doctors, and others who have the lives of human beings placed in their hands have an ethical obligation to recuse themselves from cases in which they have a personal stake. Because despite our highest opinions of ourselves, our, e- our sin easily infects our doling out of justice. We're prone to live out that pharisaical proverb that Jesus himself challenged, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And in doing so, we turn our enemies into God's enemies and demand their destruction and their damnation with little thought about God's opinion of the matter. And the book of Jonah is a check and a balance against those very tendencies inside of our hearts, that self-righteous condemnation of others. It's a book that flows in the thought pattern of the rest of the minor prophets. We saw several weeks ago the book of Amos in which God came to the people of Israel and demanded that they draw a circle around themselves. They were so consumed with the evil of the nations that were around them that they were blind to the sin inside of their own hearts. And God said, you're worse than them all. 
Draw a circle around yourself and work ferociously in repentance upon the person inside the circle. Obadiah, the book that that immediately precedes the book of Jonah, we were reminded that God alone will justly judge the nations, and we have to leave that to him. We have to trust in him. Jonah now follows that. Amos that says, work on yourself. Obadiah that says, trust God with the nations out there. Now, Jonah challenges us with the truth that even the pagan nations, they matter to God. They matter to the Lord, and they're not beyond saving. We find what I think is the main point of the entire book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2. Would you read with me the middle of this book? We won't read the whole thing, just chapter 2, Jonah's prayer of repentance to the Lord. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God who is concerned with our eternal souls. I thank you that you are a God who created this world to be good. And your very good creation is not something that you are willing to just throw in the garbage but seeing us in our sin and our separation and our helplessness, Heavenly Father, you pursued us in your steadfast love to rescue us from the depths of our despair and our disease of sin. Though we deserve to be down at the roots of the mountains, laid low with the bars of death, closed upon us forever, Lord, you saw fit to reach into those depths, to sacrifice yourself, that we might receive your salvation. Let us remember, Heavenly Father, that we are not worthy of it, and no one in this world is, but you are a God of grace and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So lead us to repentance. Lead us to Christ, that in him we might find forgiveness and righteousness that is not our own. And it's in his precious holy name we pray. Amen and amen. At the end of verse 9 of chapter 2, Jonah ends his prayer with the declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
you're going to take a note in your Bible, if you're going to do anything else, you're going to, in your notes on your paper, whatever it might be, write that down, circle it, highlight it, because that, I believe, is the point of the book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Maybe your introduction to the book of Jonah never really got beyond the flannel graphs of the Sunday school class when you were three and four years old. And all you can remember is the first half of the book of Jonah in which Jonah receives a commission from the Lord to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were one of the most powerful, it was was a city, the city of Nineveh, was one of the most powerful cities in the nation of Assyria. The Assyrians were some of the worst people to have ever lived on the planet. And I could say that pretty justly. They were the ones who originally invented crucifixion that was later uh, perfected by the Romans. They would walk into nations and utterly destroy them. It's the Assyrians who would later destroy Israel. They were bullies in the world and they flaunted it. Jonah was a prophet of the nation of Israel at one of the most prosperous times in the nation of Israel's history. And he was commissioned by the Lord, at least initially, to take a message of good news to the king of Israel, Jeroboam II. And he declared to Jeroboam, hey, listen, God is going to expand the borders of Israel under your reign. And you are going to rule over the most prosperous time in the history of northern Israel. It was a message of good news, and it was the truth. God did all of those things. He sent Jonah to that king, and Jonah was willing to go. Now God comes to Jonah and tells him to go to the Ninevites, those big bad bullies to the northeast. And Jonah decides to run in the opposite direction as far as he possibly can as he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and he runs down to Joppa where he gets on a boat and he's going to sail to Tarshish. We don't know where Tarshish was. We just know that Tarshish was a long way away from Nineveh. He's abandoning his calling. He's abandoning his life. He's getting out of Dodge. God pursues him, casts a a storm across the the sea that puts Jonah's life and the life of the sailors that are on the boat with him in danger. Eventually, it is revealed that Jonah is the reason for this storm. And Jonah still isn't willing to fall on his knees and repent before the Lord. Instead, Jonah comes up with, listen, I'm not going back. I can't go forward. The best thing for you to do is just throw me overboard. Jonah doesn't even have the courage to end his own life. He puts it, his life in the hands of his sailors and says, throw me overboard. Kill me and this will all be done. And so they do. And Jonah, he says in this psalm, goes down to the depths of the ocean. It's at the depths of the ocean that God then appoints a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. And Jonah is in the belly of this fish miraculously for three days. And it's there that he comes to the lowest point. He hears the word of the Lord and he goes down to Joppa. And he goes down into the boat. And he goes down into the belly of the boat where he can sleep. And then he's thrown down into the ocean where he is swallowed by the fish. And it's at the lowest point in Jonah's life that he finally cries out to the Lord for help. And he receives the benefits of the gracious and merciful God of the universe. The one that he says to the sailors that he worships. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah turns to him and receives mercy from God. Then God commands the fish to spit him out on the land. And he recommissions Jonah to go and he says, I'm going to give you the words that you need to preach to Nineveh. And Jonah walks into Nineveh. And he walks a day into this city that it would take three days for him to fully minister across. Walks one day in and he preaches a five-word sermon. 
40 days and you're all dead. Sounds a little bitter, don't you think? And it's through that five-word sermon that the entire city of Nineveh, from the king to the cattle, clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and they cry out to the Lord for salvation. And God, it says in the end of chapter 3, saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. The very mercy that God gave to Jonah when he repented, he gave to the Ninevites. And Jonah wasn't really happy about that. Chapter 4 opens with, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry that the very mercy that he had received from God would be given to the enemies of Israel. And God pegs him with a haunting question. Do you do right to be angry? And God gives him an object lesson in which Jonah goes up and pouts on the side of a hill and he's just waiting, hoping that maybe the Ninevites are going to mess up and then God's wrath is going to rain down and it's going to be, he's going to have front row seats with his popcorn to the next Sodom and Gomorrah. And God appoints a tree to grow up over his head and he gets shade for a day. And then the very next night, God appoints a tiny little worm to eat that tree from the inside out and it rots and it dies. And he's scorched by the wind and he's angry again. God's final words in the end of the book of Jonah says, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah says, I do very well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God's heart is broken for these wayward and sinful people. Jonah's heart is bitter because he didn't get his own way. But right in the middle of the book, Jonah seems to have this turning point where he seems to get it. And isn't it interesting that just like us, Jonah seems to get it one minute and he loses it the next. And it's this constant journey of back and forth with the Lord. But nevertheless, the book of Jonah is about this one thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's break that phrase up a little bit as we study it this morning. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This book is not Jonah's message. Unlike the rest of the prophets, which record the words of the prophet, the sermons that they preached, the poems that they wrote, the oracles that they declared, Jonah only preaches five words in the entire book. So the book of Jonah is not about Jonah's message. The book of Jonah isn't even so much about Jonah. The book of Jonah is about the Lord. God has the first word in the book. God has the last word in the book. And throughout the book, Jonah's best efforts to determine his destiny, to be the one who drives the story, are consistently thwarted by a sovereign God. And the Lord's sovereignty to save his people and his providence are detailed throughout the story because God is in control of everything, from the biggest detail to the smallest. It's God who commissions and recommissions Jonah in chapter 1, 1, and 3, verses 1 and 2. 
It's God who casts the storm upon the ocean as easily as those sailors cast the dice in chapter 1. It's God who appoints the fish to swallow Jonah. It's God who speaks to the fish, commanding it to spit Jonah out. It's God who gives Jonah the words to declare to the Ninevites. It's God who sees the actions of the Ninevites and relents from his judgment. It's God who appoints the plant to grow up over Jonah to give him the shade. It's God who appoints the worm to eat it. Every detail of creation hears and obeys the voice of the Lord except for Jonah. Instead, Jonah tries to flee from the presence of the Lord, only to learn that that's impossible. No matter where he goes, he can't get away from the love of the Lord. No matter where he goes, he can't get out from under the hand of the Lord. No matter where he goes, he cannot get away from the eyes and the heart of his God. He learns firsthand what the psalmist declares in Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. There's no place that God is not. And that is a beautiful truth. It's a warning from this passage of Scripture to each and every one of us. Just like Jonah, when we determine to go our own way, when we determine to flee and run away from the Lord, when we determine in, our, in ourselves and in our self-righteousness that we know better than God and try to run from Him, what we have to understand is there is no place that we can get away from God. But there are some of you that are paralyzed by a completely different kind of fear this morning. You are paralyzed by the fear that if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to somehow be away from God. I'm going to be out of God's will. I'm going to be out of God's vision and out of God's plan. And all of a sudden, I'm going to have horrible things take place in my life. But the message of Scripture is that there is nowhere that you can go that God is not. God disciplines His children. Those who decide and determine to run away from God in in disobedience, God does not take His love off of them. Everything that happens to Jonah in the book of Jonah is an act of God's love and His discipline as He pursues the wayward one. He didn't just back off because God is invested in this man and pursues him and loves him. And so the encouragement that I want to give to those of you, though, that are holding on to this weight that says, I'm about to make some stupid decision or I'm about to do something that is completely out of the will of the Lord, then my encouragement to you is to learn what I have learned even in the past couple of weeks. Just pursue God. Settle in your heart that I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And God says in that it doesn't then, if your heart is to pursue me and to know me and to love me, then make the choice. Because you can't go anywhere that I'm not. And I'm with you and I will guard you and I'll protect you and I will lead you and I have a purpose for you. There is nowhere that we can go where God is not and where God's plan has been cast off or undone. There's nowhere that we can go that God's not busy. What is it that God in all of his sovereignty and his providence throughout this book of Jonah, what is it that God is putting all of that power into? What is it that he's desiring to accomplish? Salvation. Salvation that belongs to the Lord. 
God takes all of his power and all of his might and all of his omnipotence and all of his omniscience and he is pouring it into the salvation of sinners. God is sending Jonah to preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites. And along the way, the Lord works salvation in the hearts and the lives of others as well. Let's be real honest. Jonah is the worst evangelist in history. Isn't he? Here he is on the boat and everything is going, you know, wrong. The storm is, 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 is cast and it is throw, they're throwing over the wheat and they're throwing over the, the bread. They're throwing over everything that they can to try to lighten the ship because everybody's terrified. And Jonah's asleep. And the captain of the boat comes and wakes him up and says, what is wrong with you? Get up and cry out to your God. Maybe he will have mercy on us. And Jonah still is quiet. He knows that it's his fault. And they cast the dice, and he thinks he can get away with it, just like the sin of Ai in the book of Joshua. When Achan thinks, I can just hide in the crowd and nobody's going to know what's going on. And he forgets that God in his sovereignty sees him where he's hiding. And the, ca- the die is cast, the lots are cast, and it falls upon Jonah. And he's exposed. And even then, he has the opportunity to preach God, and he just simply says this haughty kind of sermon that says, I worship the God who created all of this. And even despite his disobedience and despite his horrible preaching, after he's cast aside and the storm ceases, chapter 1, verse 16 says, the men, the sailors, these pagan sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly, And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Even despite Jonah's disobedience, the sailors are brought to faith and trust in Yahweh. Despite his his spiteful and simple sermon, the Ninevites also repent, putting themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And the king orders a proclamation that no one is supposed to eat anything, that they are to cover themselves in sackcloth and let us call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence in his hands. Despite Jonah's failures, the Ninevites repent and they cry out to the Lord. And in both of those instances, these people are completely unsure of whether or not God will actually relent from what he is doing. In both instances, the sailors say, call out to your God, cry out to your God. In verse 6, it says, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Likewise, the king of the Ninevites says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. These guys are doing, they're repenting and they're crying out to the Lord with no genuine hope inside of them that anything is going to change. And yet in their repentance, God hears and responds. But Jonah knows. Jonah knows that God is not characterized most by judgment and anger, and wrath. Instead, he says in chapter 4, God, I knew that this was going to happen. He said, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The Bible teaches us that the heart of God is gracious and merciful. God is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He's the God who relents 
over disaster. He's the God that runs to us in the midst of our disobedience. He's the God that pursues us despite the death sentence that is justly upon us. Because Jesus Christ is the perfect contrast to Jonah, isn't he? Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Jonah's disobedience is one of the most gut-wrenchingly horrifying acts in all of Scripture. He didn't run from his calling because he was afraid of preaching a message of condemnation against the, the Ninevites. He runs away because he is afraid of preaching a message of repentance and mercy. He'd rather see them all dead and dying in hell than go and preach the gospel. But God is nothing like Jonah because Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet and the great foil to Jonah. He didn't run from us. He didn't run from us not only because of what we had done. He ran to us even knowing what we would do. That we would falsely condemn him, that we would crucify him, that we would spit in his face, that we would pluck out his hairs, that we would beat him beyond recognition, that we would kill him. And that he would hang on that cross and not only endure the physical pain and torment of our sin, but he would drink the cup of God's wrath for it as well. And still he chose to come, that he might preach good news the gospel of the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of our sin, the defeat of death, and ultimately the crowning jewel of the entire gospel, adoption into his family. As enemies of God would be drawn into the family of God because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the book of Jonah, brothers and sisters, is a personal one. The book of Jonah ends with that haunting question, do you do well to be angry? Just like Jonah, we are oftentimes so preoccupied with the evil out there that we are blind to the evil in here, the evil in my own heart. But the book of Jonah is a mirror that is up in front of our hearts, beautifully displaying God's grace and mercy to messed up people. Even those people, when those people are the very ones who shouldn't know His grace and mercy. How often, brothers and sisters, do we think that God's mercy is best displayed in saving these pagan sailors or these pagan Ninevites? The truth of the matter is, Jonah is in need of God's love and mercy and salvation just as much as every single one of them. Jonah isn't merely a representative of Israel, a rebellious people who ran from their calling to be a light to the nations for the glory of the Lord. He stands for each and every one of us who have been given the calling and the commission of Jesus Christ to go into the nations, to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory and honor to the Lord, that we proclaim the good news of salvation of Jesus Christ, and yet we turn a blind eye to the very ones that we are blessed with the privilege of serving and speaking the truth to. Sometimes willingly, blatantly, just turning a blind eye because we're too busy. Other times, though, it's just because we're passionately pursuing our own wants and desires and we've turned away from God's without knowing it. But God's heart is to give mercy. God's heart is to give salvation. All of God is concerned with all of us being saved 
and repentance. And there is no disobedience, brother or sister in Christ, that is so great as to make you, as to take God's salvation off of the table for you. But the book of Jonah isn't merely about God's sovereignty and his providence or that him working all of those things out for our salvation. The book of Jonah is a bold reminder that salvation belongs to the Lord. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in the middle of that poem, in the middle of, of Jonah's prayer, Jonah's contrasting Yahweh's ability to save with the inability of the idols of the pagan nations. Verse 8 says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah had just been thrown off of a boat that is the, the litmus test in the perfect picture of what our world says is the real answer. Our world would say the real answer is religious pluralism. Everybody does what they want. Everybody worships what they want. Everybody goes their own way. Everybody lives at peace with one another. We have tolerance. We're good to go. But those sailors who are all crying out to their own gods, living lives according to their own principles and desires and demand, learn firsthand that somebody else's problems become theirs real quick. Because Jonah's wanting to do his own thing. And his sin affects those that are in his sphere of influence. And so they all call out to their gods. And these false gods are, are completely incapable of helping. The book of Jonah is that salvation is from the Lord. But beyond that, I love how the ESV renders this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's another side of that word that is emphasized in the book of Jonah. The point of Jonah is much bigger than simply that God is the one who accomplishes salvation. And salvation belonging to the Lord communicates that key truth. Doug Stewart in his commentary says this, One of the functions of this prayer of Jonah's is to voice his gratefulness for undeserved rescue, thereby exposing the inconsistency of his unwillingness that Nineveh should experience the same gratefulness, however undeserved. Jonah cannot decide whom Yahweh ought to save or not. Salvation's, salvation is Yahweh's to offer. He's offered it to Jonah, who has gladly accepted it with all of his heart. Moreover, God is free to offer salvation to Nineveh as well. Salvation belongs to God. It's not just his to accomplish, it's his to apply. It's his to give away, and God's grace and mercy and his character of abounding in steadfast love and mercy means that it's God's desire to dispense that salvation to all of humanity, even the ones who have hurt us, even the ones who hate us, even the ones that we would consider to be our enemies, are men and women and children created in the image of God and bear that image and that thumbprint of God and have an eternal soul that is at stake. No matter what it is that they have done to us. And salvation is not up to you and me to dispense to whom we see fit. The people that look like us. The people that talk like us. The people that vote like us. The people who live near us. The people that we are most comfortable with. We are commissioned to go into all of the earth to declare to every ethnos the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, when we ignore, 
when we demonize, when we denigrate a group of people because of past sins or even present sins, we make a desperately wicked judgment within our own hearts to leave them on a journey of eternal damnation. And that is not our place. That is not our mission. We are commissioned and said to make disciples declaring to them the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, who bore the punishment for their sin, past, present, and future, that they might be saved. Because that's what Jesus did for us. So fix your eyes upon Jesus. And understand what has been bought and paid for and accomplished and applied to you and to me. And realize that it isn't our nationality, it isn't our education, it isn't our family history, it isn't just dumb luck that we are saved. If you are a child of God today, it's because God, in His grace and His love, chose to make a way in His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue you from your sin. And part of that plan was that he put some faithful believer in your life to speak the news of salvation in Christ to you. And now he calls you like he called Jonah to go. To live in the light of God's love and let that love overflow from you into the lives of others. And take heart. Jay Sklar in his commentary says this, the stories of pagan repentance in the book of Jonah should not only be a model for Israelite listeners to follow, but the stories should give the Israelites a vision for what can happen among their pagan neighbors and thus encourage them in their mission to be a kingdom of priests in and for the world. The testimonies of the transformation that took place in these pagan sailors, the testimony of the transformation that took place among the Ninevites should give you and me hope that even the hardest hearts in our neighborhood, in our community, in our nation, in, in our world are no match for the salvation of God. So who are we to sit back and be afraid? Who are we to come up with excuses for why we shouldn't go? Who are we to be disobedient? Instead, let's look to Jesus. Let's follow Christ. And let's proclaim the good news of salvation. But my last question to you is, as you hear that, let me urge you and encourage you, starting today, right here, right now, would you do a hard inventory of your heart? Surrendering it and submitting it to the Lord. And hearing that question that says, do you do right to be angry? To be angry against those people that hurt you. To be angry against those people who have hurt those that you love. To be angry against other nations and other people groups for past sins or even present failures. Do you, be ang do, you do well to be angry? angry and his story in Lord of the Rings J.R.R. Tolkien writes 
an exchange between Frodo the Hobbit and Gandalf the Wizard, in which Frodo says in a bout of anger, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Gandalf's response is pity. It's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Don't be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. Brothers and sisters, God is the one who's in control of the end. God is the one who is faithful in the present. And God is the one who's called you and me to be faithful with the gifts and the ministry and the people that he's assigned to us right now. So put away your anger. Put away your fear and your despair. And look to Jesus Christ who bore the blows that he didn't deserve and bears the scars that he never should have had and died the death that was not his to die that we might be saved. And let me urge you to take up your cross and follow after Jesus today and tomorrow and next week. Because you cannot outrun him. You cannot go where he is not. And you cannot go where he is not working for salvation.